Welcome to the Doctors Hospital podcast. I am your host, Alexis Burrows, brand manager at Doctors Hospital. Today we have the distinct pleasure of having as a guest on the show Dr. Laura Desrosier, who is a urogynecologist here at Doctors Hospital to talk about Women's Health Month and urogynecology. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Desrosier. Good morning and thank you, Alexis. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So today what we want to do is kind of shine a light on um, female reproductive um, surgery, which is kind of the, the broad strokes term. Um, that speaks to urogynecology. Um, obviously, Dr. Laura is someone who is a specialist in that area, so she's perfect to kind of shine a light on that for us. Now, you know, May is deemed Women's Health Month here in the Bahamas, um, and we like to take the opportunity to kind of speak to, you know, topics that are relevant in that area. So, just to kind of, um, I guess, break the ice and kind of get people to understand a little bit, you know, what what some of the words and phrases around, you know, this is. What exactly is a urogynecologist? Um, that's a great question. First, I just want to take a moment just to say blessings to everyone and thank you for tuning in um, to discuss a topic that's uh, quite uh, important to me. It's very near and dear to me um, as it pertains to women's health and um, propagate propagating information uh, to, uh, uh, involving um, pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, so I want to, the other thing I want to do is really take a moment, um, particularly in this setting, to thank everyone that's doing their part um, in maintaining uh, uh, whatever they can do to help decrease um, numbers of coronavirus propagation. Um, I think that as a community, the Bahamas has really stepped out to do their part, and so it's much appreciated. Um, for, and also want to thank the people on the front lines that are making um, sacrifices every day for uh, uh, the community at large. Now, to get into the topic, um, urogynecology, what is it? Um, well, so it's a subspecialty that's been around for quite some time, but it wasn't until 2011 that it was certified as a subspecialty. Um, so female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery um, also known as urogynecology, uh, sort of straddles the world of um, both uh, OBGYN and urology. So um, urogynecologist or FPMRS um, trained um, physicians uh, typically will do a resident, complete medical school obviously, and then will do residency in either OBGYN and then continue to do additional years of um, specialty training. Um, and it varies, so most people who do OBGYN will go on to do three additional years of fellowship training, and if you do urology, uh, that tends to be a five-year program, so you'll do two additional years of specialty training. Um, all in all, mm -hmm. that's seven years uh, of training. Um, and the focus really okay. is, uh, you know, 
in the evaluation, the diagnosis, um, the treatment of conditions that affect the pelvic floor um, that can lead to either muscle or connective tissue disorders um, and, uh, and other symptoms. Okay. So you mentioned um, urology as its own specialty and obviously um, OBGYN. What is the difference between um, your typical OB uh, or urologist and, you know, what you are, which is a urogynecologist? Yeah, great question. Um, and I'm actually going to add in primary care because uh, I really feel like, you know, primary care, both OBGYNs, primary care, OBGYN and urologists all have their own knowledge of these problems and, um, and mm-hmm. really are oftentimes our first um, line in terms of recognizing what's going on and then deciding to, um, to then uh, send uh, a patient on further for evaluation. So while a primary care surgeon, certain, uh, while a primary care physician rather certainly um, can take care of overactive bladder, there are sometimes some refractory, meaning difficult to treat um, overactive bladder symptoms that uh, medication, for example, or just doing um, um, uh, sort of um, uh, bladder modifications or dietary modifications are not enough. Um, OBGYNs also are trained in um, certain aspects of pelvic floor disorders, um, uh, particularly for those who do OB. They're well adept to seeing um, the the vaginal change, the vaginal wall changes, particularly during the obstetric and postpartum periods, um, and so. They are our first line, and obviously most OBGYNs feel very, very comfortable using um, pessaries or other modalities that we use for conservative management. Um, and then mm-hmm. urologists are also um, very adept to a treatment of, of incontinence um, and, and some other, uh, obviously, other issues. The urogynecologist sort of straddles those worlds, right? So um, urogynecologists are particularly particularly interested in, um, in those areas and have a level of, um, uh, of um, uh, specialized um, uh, techniques that can sort of help in the treatment of uh, more advanced cases. Mm. Okay. So I think that kind of gives us a, a, a good idea of what the field is when it comes to where it fits in, in, in the overall medical space. Um, so what, what are some symptoms that, you know, a person would see that would make them think, hey, maybe I need to see a, a urogynecologist? Great question. Um, you know, so I, well, one of the things that I think that is very interesting is that sometimes, um, you, you know, a patient may not necessarily have um, symptoms that they think that are bothersome or that they, or that they recognize as being aberrant, meaning... Uh, Mm -hmm. particularly as we age, there's a tendency for women to say that, you know, oh, it's normal that I should leak a little bit when I, you know, cough or laugh. I should um, have um, some incontinence um, or I should have some pressure symptoms. Um, But so I think it's really important to make a distinction of what is common versus what is normal. Um, common, mm-hmm. common is, uh, you know, changes that will happen, particularly being peripartum um, or being um, perimenopausal or postmenopausal. 
So symptoms of bulge, um, sometimes you can actually feel something coming out of the vagina, heaviness, fullness. Um, sometimes there can be an arching of the vagina, um, particularly at the end of the, the day or uh, after a, a large bowel movement, especially accompanied with constipation. Um, symptoms of having difficulty urinating or feeling like you're not completely empty after you urinate. Um, leaking when you cough or laugh or sneeze or you know jump up and down. Uh, when you pick up your grandchildren, etc., uh, that's common, but it's not normal. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Feeling urgent, feeling that you urgently have to use the restroom and you really don't have control. Feeling like if I don't get to the restroom right now, I'm going to leak on myself. Um, again, fairly common, but again, not normal. Yeah. Um, I think this may be a question that you answer a little bit later, um, but. I know one of the things that you've mentioned thus far is, you know, you're talking about picking up your grandchildren, so age being a factor. Um, but is this something that affects women not necessarily, you know, in, in, in the older stages of life? Because I know that may be what people think. So if you're, you know, a 30-year-old and you just had a baby, you know, does that play a part? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, so one of my areas of, of research interest is, you know, why is it that someone who has 10 children, right, doesn't end up having any significant prolapse or symptoms, and then someone who's got one child, um, or even somebody who's had two cesarean sections, which you would think would be protective, mm -hmm. um, ends up with having significant um, issues. So we know that there are some underlying um, uh, cog uh, connective tissue um, disorders that can predispose people to it. That, that's one thing. The other thing is that, um, you know, pelvic um, organ prolapse um, and some of the pelvic board disorders that we are identifying probably start, you know, much younger than we, than we traditionally thought, you know. So even though you may not have symptoms, but there can start to be, you know, small, you may not have significant symptoms, I should say, but you can start to see um, mm -hmm. small changes that make it uh, that over the course of, you know, several years will worsen the outcome, meaning, you know, you may notice that, okay, well, when I go to the restroom, I don't completely empty, um, doesn't really bother you now, but you get to a point where now actually you're really not able to hold for any significant period of time because you just over the years have progressively emptied less and less. So that is something that we can mm -hmm. see in the younger years. The other thing is, um, you know, we have been looking for, are there any preventative or, um, or ways to start institutionalizing um, change, uh, behavioral modifications, incorporating pelvic floor exercises early on to help mitigate mm -hmm. the effects of um, pelvic floor disorders uh, over the long term. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, because I know, I mean, I imagine that's, uh, we'll probably come back around to that question about preventative measures. Because um, I imagine that's something that people would be interested in, you know, if, if they fall in that bracket of feeling like, well, I'm too young for this to necessarily be what's happening to me, but they have something that may be a mild um, symptom that could be tied to to pelvic floor disorder. Right. Um, okay, so my next question for you is, what are some of the areas of treatment um, that a urogynecologist would manage? Yeah, great question. So um, we manage lots of things, um, and they range from, 
urinary incontinence and some of the things that I've talked about before, which urinary incontinence essentially are bladder problems, um, issues of being able to hold in your urine appropriately. We break them down into different types of incontinence, including stress incontinence and urge incontinence. Um, and, um, and I can talk to you a little briefly about some uh, additional information in terms of incontinence. Um, we also deal mm-hmm. with prolapse um, of various organs, so prolapse of the uterus, prolapse of the vagina, prolapse of the cervix, etc. Um, your recurrent urinary tract infections, we may think that um, typically that's not uh, something that a urogynecologist sees, but actually it has, and it is something that we see quite often. And part of that is because um, the pelvic floor works together as a unit, right? So when you have um, a dropping of the vagina, we oftentimes call that a cystocele or a rectocele, that can impact the way that you're able to empty your bladder. And if you're not able to empty your bladder well, well, then that increases your risk of recurrent urinary tract infections. So you see like something mm. that may seem that it, it's, it's of no relevance to maybe what a urogynecologist would be taking care of fixing the prolapse will actually fix the recurrent UTIs rather than just putting someone on um, antibiotics consistently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other more rare gotcha. things um, include urethral diverticulums, and of course we take care of congenital anomalies as well. Okay. Um, so what can, what can cause pelvic floor disorders? Um, yeah, great question. So lots of different life events can um, can cause pelvic floor disorders, and really the ages vary, right? So um, there's certainly uh, people who have pelvic floor disorders who are in their 20s and 30s, um, and then there are women who are postmenopausal who also will have um, um, pelvic floor disorder uh, or the symptoms that accompany them. So, you know, it can happen throughout a person's entire lifetime. And I think it's really important to sort of identify those initial symptoms um, or warning signs that there may be something that's happening and have it evaluated earlier on because it certainly will impact the types of treatment that you are, that you have, what options you have if you start early versus uh, later on in the disease course. So things like vaginal delivery, Mm -hmm. we always know about, obviously, you know, the the size of the baby will impact on the length of labor, the second stage of labor when you're actually pushing um, the Mm-hmm. the infant out. So that's um, one thing. Other things, um, uh, multiple births, more having more than one child. Um, obesity, chronic constipation. And this is something that I feel like I deal with so much in my office. We don't realize that, you know, when we Everyone thinks about having a baby and the second stage of labor, et cetera. But, you know, when we look at across the board at um, the number of births that you had, um, the uh, when we look at obesity and um, uh, the size of the, the, the baby, when we, com- when we look at all of those things, chronic constipation is an independent risk factor um, for that. So we, it's really mm. important that that's something that is addressed. Why? Constantly pushing mm-hmm. down on that pelvic floor is going right. to have much more of an effect, actually, than if you, uh, for example, had one baby. So all of those things can have um, dramatic effect. Um, repeated, strenuous, uh, repeated strenuous activity, uh, chronic and constant heavy lifting, um, particularly mm-hmm. for those who have jobs where they're doing a lot of that. Um, uh, radiation treatment, um, uh, as of course, genetics plays a large role. Aging plays a role as well. 
Um, but things that we don't normally mm -hmm. think about, prior pelvic surgery can certainly have an impact on it. And then, of course, radiation, anything that decreases the ability uh, uh, of the, the tissue to have good vascularization um, can impact it. Mm -hmm. Okay, understood. Now, I have a, a question, um, just kind of a, a jumping off of, of some of the, the symptoms. So I know, generally speaking, um, you have, like, let's say you're someone who works a, a job that doesn't allow for a lot of breaks. So like, let's say, you know, for yourself as a physician, you may be going from patient to patient to patient for hours on end, or somebody who works in, you know, a similar type of job where they don't have a lot of time where they can they can stop so they they end up holding urine for a long period of time is that something that potentially plays a part as well yeah yeah in fact nurses teachers even physicians are known to have you would call them the elephant bladder it's the <laughs> bladder that holds it holds and holds until until i can't anymore so you go from i used to be able to hold it right you know, 20 hours and then and then they're like and now i'm going every you know hour right. So yes, we recognize that, um, and then we and we think that we in a society we need to be just and fair, right? So we need to do what is right for the patient, for people, mm -hmm. um, and we don't recommend going twenty hours. And I think it's important and only fair that people have the ability to go to the restroom when they need mm -hmm. to. And then also the other thing about it is actually getting adequate um, fluid intake, mm -hmm. right? So there's a tendency not to drink water because you don't want to end up going to right. the restroom, but that actually worsens things over mm -hmm. time so obviously it can have impact on your general health uh, of course in your kidney right. function but more so it actually causes you to go to the restroom more because the urine is more concentrated it gets to the bladder and it actually irritates the bladder more so it's counterintuitive right. drinking more water actually is helpful and I think that um, uh, there are some lifestyle modifications that we can mm -hmm. do that uh, can actually have a big impact uh, later on so that things don't worsen to the point where you need to have a surgical intervention. Right. I think the interesting thing about that discussion in terms of the, the, the fluid intake is that it's it's hand in hand with a lot of the same careers that make it difficult for you to, to go with a certain level of frequency. Um, and and it's, it's, it's interesting, right. the, the hand in hand um, relationship there um so just mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. looking now towards like okay so let's say you know someone comes in and they are presenting with symptoms what are because i know you know some people are afraid to go under the knife or they'd rather put that off for a time so what are some of the non-surgical treatments that are available yeah, I'm glad you asked about non-surgical treatment because that's actually really important for us. We tend to, whenever we can, recommend non-surgical options, right? Because in the long run, we do find, and there's good data to suggest that, you know, upwards of 50% of patients will not need a surgical intervention immediately, mm -hmm. right? So if we can, we should try. So these things include um, pelvic floor exercises, uh, you know, often, you know, dubbed as Kegels exercises. Um, uh, interestingly, when you talk to patients, everybody knows about Kegels, right? But, uh, you know, when we test out to see how many patients do it correctly, so I'll ask patients, have you heard of this exercise? Mm -hmm. um, and they'll say yes, you know, and they'll say, oh, yeah, Kegels. Um, and <laughs> you'll say, okay, well, good. And then you test and you say, well, do you feel comfortable doing it? And, and the majority of them will end up in my practice, they'll tell me yes. And when I examine them, actually, I find that less than 20% of my patients are able to accurately do uh, and appropriately do the Kegels mm -hmm. exercise. So 
so I actually tended to stay away from crawling and Kegels exercises and, and sort of renaming them pelvic floor training exercises mm-hmm. um, because I think that um, it reintroduces it in a new way so that they're not thinking, oh, I know how to do this, particularly when they're doing it incorrectly. Right. Um, so yes, pelvic floor exercises. I work very closely with um, pelvic floor therapists that are specialized in pelvic floor, doing both internal work um, and using modalities like biofeedback, which kind of helps the patient to make the connection between what their muscle should be doing uh, and how strong is a good contraction um, versus what is a good relaxation. Um, so biofeedback exercises and other types of um, uh, exercises that can help both strengthen the pelvic floor, but also teach patients to completely relax their pelvic floor because any muscle that's tonically contracted is not going to be able to have the same uh, contraction force and elongation that allows for muscle growth and strengthening. Mm. Um, so we find an area that is oftentimes lacking is that patients don't, they may have you know, uh, they may have the ability to contract the muscle a little bit, but then they stay contracted or or they don't completely relax the muscle in between these um, uh, those periods of contraction. And therefore, they don't get the best outcome from these pelvic floor exercises. Mm-hmm. So these are small nuances that you gain by working with um, people that are, you know, that have specialized in this field. Um, sometimes we have to use medications, behavioral modifications I talked about. Um, a good bit earlier, but I, I want to take a moment to kind of delve into it just a little bit because behavioral modifications, you'd be surprised, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, just drinking water or or stop drinking coffee, for example. You know, we oftentimes use what's called a bladder diary in our, in our office because I really want to see what is it that you're ingesting, what is coming into your system. And um, when it is coming into your system, what, how, how is it impacting you? So by keeping track of it over the course of a few days, you can actually see, oh, yeah, I had, you know, two Cokes that day. And then I could see like three hours later, I was going to the bathroom consistently. So those things kind of help make the connection of, okay, this is what's going into my body. And then this is how it's affecting my bladder. Um, Lastly, I want to talk about um, a non-surgical management of prolapse. Pelvic floor exercises certainly is one, but we also use um, vaginal pessaries, which are plastic devices that can be placed into the vagina and that can have a dramatic improvement in the quality of life, particularly for patients who are not surgical candidates or don't know if this is really what's bothering Mm -hmm. them, right? Because in the pelvic floor, your bowel is right there. If you still have a uterus, that's there bladders right there. So the symptoms that you're feeling, sometimes it's not, you can't always pinpoint this is the cause, mm-hmm. right? They come in and they have these vague symptoms. Oh, I feel a little bit of pressure. Oh, I feel some pulling sensation. And this is a great way to see is the source of the symptom that you're feeling because of the pelvic floor dysfunction. Because if it is, then surgical options become more um, of an obvious um, alternative. Mm-hmm. Um. So I, I know you mentioned um, the the Kegel exercises, or as you've rebranded them, the pelvic floor muscle training exercises. Um, is there any connection between um, pelvic floor disorders and sexual health? Because I know we're talking about it a lot from, you know, the, the incontinence side and prolapse and those sorts of things. But is there any interaction between that and sexual health? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes, and on, mental, and on many levels. So um, sexual health in the, in the way that the woman visualizes herself and um, issues of body shaming, mm -hmm. um, particularly associated with incontinence and, um, uh, and prolapse, fearing that there's going to be judgment by the partner. Mm -hmm. So that's one. That's the emotional aspect of it. Um, the other part of it is, uh, you know, so prolapse itself is typically not a painful um, uh, ish, uh, um, process, but if you have a, a persistent pulling sensation, then that can really impact on how willing you are to engage in intercourse. Mm -hmm. um, the other uh, thing that we oftentimes see is, particularly with advanced prolapse, is as that tissue starts to rub on the outside of the vagina, patients are more likely to have, you know, irritation, um, uh, more likely to have dryness of the vagina, and all of those need to be identified, right? Mm. So, Yes, it has a it has a really um, uh, impactful influence on sexual health. Um, I think first and foremost, it's to um, first we have to dismantle the the idea of um, you know sexual uh, women feeling afraid to discuss about their sexual health with their provider. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually we use a questionnaire in our office to kind of go delve into that. And a few times. Um, Actually, more than a few times I have patients who are like, well, you know, you're the first one who has ever talked to me about these things. It's like, you know, you know, my sexuality doesn't exist. And I think it's really important because we know that um, when women are uh, satisfied sexually, that it has a huge impact on their um, their environment and particularly their relationships. Mm -hmm. Okay. So sorry to have sidetracked you there, but I think that was um, uh, an important kind of uh, discussion to have a little bit as well. Um, so you discussed mm -hmm. non-surgical treatments um, a, a bit ago. So what are some of the surgical options that are available for somebody who may be um, suffering through uh, any one of the disorders or related issues? Yeah, so, um, you know, once typically we're going to try non-surgical options if it's available, mm -hmm. but once we try that, then we're definitely going to discuss uh, your issue so it's usually like this is what i'm seeing here it involves x y and z and these are the options um, and these options range from rebuilding the pelvic floor support um, with native what we call native tissue repair so we use your own tissue to help support mm -hmm. that and reduce the excess bulge that you may be feeling um, repairing the prolapse and I first the the key to repairing a, a good repair of the prolapse is to identify what is the the prolapse where is the source of the prolapse making sure that we identify if there's an apical component if it's the anterior wall of the vagina versus the posterior wall of the vagina how wide is the genital hiatus which is that opening um, that you see at the open at the mouth of the vagina um, all of those are really important and i think it's important to to recognize that you know patients may not necessarily be feeling um, pain, but they certainly can have, because of a widened hiatus, they can have, you know, loss of sensation during intercourse, feeling like they can't um, uh, have the, the, same, the same type of um, support that they once had. So all of those can, um, can be repaired at the, uh, at the time of surgery. Um, sometimes it does involve a hysterectomy, not always. Um, but there are times when it's best to remove the uterus, and we discuss that in, uh, in depth with the patient. Mm -hmm. um, we want to identify if there's any um, urinary incontinence, and we want to be able to identify that if there is, and we want to support that um, with a surgical technique to, to resolve the, um, uh, the stress urinary incontinence. 
Um, all of these uh, uh, surgical options are discussed thoroughly um, with diagrams, really to help the patient understand what's going on, right? The pelvic floor is essentially, it's a 3D machinery, right? That everything is really connected with the other, including muscle and organs. Um, and it also in, involves the, the, the functionality as well as the structural um, component. So it's really important that our patients get a sense of what is going on so that they can, because I believe that you know, knowledge is power. So once you understand something, it's easier to understand, okay, well, this is what my, then you can have better expectations in terms of outcomes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess, you know, one of, one of the things in this space and time that we're currently in with um, all of the implications of COVID-19, um, social distancing and things like that, uh, if somebody was interested in setting up or arranging a visit with you, um, I know right now that would be via our telehealth system, but what would be the best way for them to, to make those arrangements? Yeah, correct. So in an effort to provide timely care for our patients, but while respecting the social distancing efforts, um, which have helped uh, control the coronavirus pandemic, um, we're providing telehealth visits uh, through doctor's hospital, through our sessional clinic. Um, patients can call uh, the doctor's hospital hotline, which is 302. Uh, 47, excuse me, 4,600. They can um, go to extension 5557. That's 302, 4,600, extension 5557. Um, and that will get them to the sessional clinic. Um, they can ask for uh, Carla or Mitch um, or Michelle and, um, and ask for an appointment, a telehealth appointment with Dr. DeRosier. Um, and we will help arrange that um, for them. Okay. Well, um, is there any anything else that we've missed? Anything else you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? Um, no, I, I, you know, so a couple of things. This has um, been a great opportunity for me to kind of talk about um, a topic that I'm very passionate about that I love. I think um, it's very important that um, we remember to take care of ourselves. It's so easy for us as women to take care of our children and our husband and our families and and then I don't know how many times I've, I've seen patients come in and say, you know, well, I've known about this for at least five years, but I had all of these things to mm -hmm. do. And now it's gotten to the point where I just can't live my life anymore. I need this to be changed. And the, so we, you've, we've lost a number of years where we could have had a, um, uh, the, the implication may have not necessarily been a surgical intervention, mm -hmm. right? So I want to encourage women to take care of themselves. I want to encourage women um, to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. Hey, this has been going on. This is affecting either my um, my sexuality. This is affecting um, my my comfort during intercourse. Um, uh, and what are some options? The options are not necessarily going to be surgical option, but the earlier you intervene, the better off you um, the better off in most cases a patient will be. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I think you have some appointments coming up soon. Um, but I wanted to thank you for taking your time out to, to, to speak with us today um, and to shine a light on urogynecology um, and some of the different nuances of it. I'm sure it's a topic that will be of interest to uh, many of our listeners um, just because of how far-reaching 
you know, if you have the, one of the issues, how far-reaching it can be. Um, things like incontinence, things like issues with your, your sexual health, all of those are, are pretty um, important and critical parts of, of life. So I want to thank you for taking the time out to talk to us. Um, we'll repeat that information if anybody is interested in uh, making an appointment with Dr. Desrosier. You can call Doctor's Hospital at 302-4600, extension 5557, and ask to make an appointment through our sessional clinic. Um, for the time being, it will be done through our telehealth system. And we're going to have um, some other guests coming on the podcast later this month that are going to speak to the safety and the privacy protections of our telehealth system to kind of, you know, let people know that it is safe and it's adequately protected for you to go through that process. Um, so thank you, Dr. Desrosier. Anything you want to say as, you, as we wrap up? Uh, thank you, Alexis. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to everyone, and I look forward to seeing patients. Yes, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but thank you. Thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Doctors Hospital podcast. As always, we ask that you like, comment, subscribe, and share, and we'll see you here next week on the Doctors Hospital podcast. Thank you. Thank you.